Prosopagnosia, the inability to recognize faces, occurs in up to 2% of the population. Most people struggle with it alone, unaware it even has a name. The stories in this podcast can be painful and hilarious. Join us for an exploration of the people, science, and realities of this condition. Maybe you have a hard time remembering faces. Come for the stories, stay for the coping techniques. If this were a Superman comic, this would be the Bizarro episode. Our guest today is an expert in the opposite of prosopagnosia. Josh Davis is a PhD researcher and consultant in the field of super recognizers. Josh, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for, for having me on. Well, maybe I should let you tell define that. What is a super recognizer? Well, a, a super recognizer it is the opposite of someone with prosopagnosia to some degree. As you can imagine, every skill, every physical or psychological uh, characteristics of human beings exists on a spectrum. Some people are very good. Some people are not so good. And we think super recognition is basically the people at the very top end of the face recognition spectrum. They are excellent at remembering faces, perhaps that they spotted for a fleeting glimpse many years later. They're um, for, for sort of policing, that, that's very important. But generally, they're just at the other end of the scale from prosopagnosia. And is this, as in your estimation, as unknown in the general populace as face blindness? Um, I think it is as unknown as face blindness, yes. Um, and I, I think it's because there's been no real need for anyone to understand these syndromes whatsoever. Um, I think it's a growing interest. There's been quite a lot of media interest over the last few years, which will then generate more and more uh, knowledge within the general population. Um, I, I think that there are different reasons that, that super recognition and prosopagnosia should become sort of more famous, if you like. One is prosopagnosia obviously has is, is a problem for people. And in fact, when super recognition was first sort of identified as existing, most of the people who came forward to researchers also said that they found it a problem because they could recognize everybody that they'd met. And this would be a problem. It's like you meet your... Uh, the, the, the child who is in your class when you're 11 years of age and you go, oh, hi, buddy, how are you? Haven't seen you for 30 years. And, of course, they look, look at you with astonishment. And, and many of the super recognizers never realized that other people didn't have their skills. They just thought people didn't like them. So you could imagine that if, if in that sort of scenario, it was their sort of psychological uh, profile was perhaps a little bit anxious. Um, and I think one of the good things about making these things more public is people understand, actually, oh, I'm a bit lucky, really. That is really interesting. I mean, that is uh, very common to prosopagnosia too, right? Like people go their whole lives, sometimes into their 30s and 40s, sometimes never really hearing about it, just happening to read an article about it or see a news show. And the same with super recognizers. And in both cases, they'll tend to, in most people, most people will internalize that and see that as something wrong with them. Like uh, people in, in the super recognizer point, uh, people, they may think other people don't like them because they don't recognize them. That's wild. Yeah, to some extent. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, I think with super recognizers also, uh, and I suspect it's probably the same with prosopagnosics. It's actually they compare themselves to their partners because generally you don't you don't know how good at face recognition everybody else is in the world. Everyone else you know, but it's quite probable that you can compare yourself to your your partner because of course you could be watching a TV show or something like that. And I understand that prosopagnosics may struggle to follow some of the actors because they find it difficult to. Uh, especially if actors change appearance slightly. With super recognizers, it's sort of the same. And I quite often hear uh, a, a sort of anecdotes from super recognizers saying, well, I just thought my husband was lazy because he just never recognized. 
the C-list actors, let alone the A or B-list actors. And in fact, their husband was just average ability at face recognition, whereas the super recognizers could see the extras who are in films or in TV soaps in the background often and recognize them from show to show, something that, you know, I certainly can't do it. And I know the vast majority of the population could never do that. You mentioned that this, when this was discovered a moment ago, which I gather was not that long ago, really, and research began on it not that long ago. It's so niche. So when did it start and how on earth did you find your way into specializing in this? Yes, well, I mean, the first published paper was, it wasn't by me. It was done at Harvard University. And it was done by uh, a group of professors who, who specialized in prosopagnosia. This was in 2009. And they sort of caught a call out for people to take part in their research. And they had four super recognizers. We eventually worked out with super recognizers who came forward saying, I don't have that problem. I just recognize everybody. Uh, so that's when the first research was actually done. Uh, and, and what they showed was that on the tests they used, that super recognizers were about a, as good, as sort of superior to controls as controls were superior to prosopagnosics. So if, again, going back to this spectrum, controls in the middle is you'd expect being average ability, super recognizers and, and prosopagnosic scores differed from controls by the same amount. I should say, though, that I think, if, if you like, knowledge of super recognizers has existed for a very long time. We do know that Roman Empire, emperors, for instance, had advisors who would perhaps be able to whisper in their ear who's sort of coming along when they're holding court and you've got lots of lots of people coming to see the emperor. Well, you've got to have somebody who knows who they are to be able to tell the emperor. So that might have been a job for a super recognizer. We, we don't know now. And also we know that sometimes special forces who were perhaps working, um, and certainly in Northern Ireland, in um, when we had um, sort of terrorism with the IRA, we do know that undercover officers, which they called spotters, were, were working to, and they seem to know all of the, the people who are under suspicion of perhaps being sympathetic to terrorism, so that, of course, if they've got, if they're in crowds or something, they could advise the army and things like that. So I'm not sure whether, again, they were super recognizers, nobody's actually tested them. But my research first got uh, started in, in 2010, where I met the head of the Metropolitan Police um, CCTV identification unit, basically management unit. They had a single uh, unit where all the um, suspects' images from crime scenes would come in, and they set up a caught-on-camera website. And the aim behind that was that um, police officers mainly, but sometimes members of the public, would identify an unknown suspects committing crimes. You could see them doing it on CCTV. And what they found was a very small number of officers were making the vast majority of the identifications. Um, so there are 30,000 Metropolitan Police officers approximately, and there's about 25 of them were making nearly a half of all the identifications from CCTV. And, and they almost sort of generated a bit of a competition between each other. Now, the head of the CCTV unit had worked in Northern Ireland. So he was aware of the existence of spotters. And one and one equals two. We decided to test these police officers who were making lots of identifications to see if they did score higher on face recognition tests than, than a group of controls of the same age, gender, and ethnicity. I mean, we tried to match them up. And yes, we did. Not all of them, though, which was quite interesting. Uh, and for policing, this is very important because um, just because you make a lot of identifications from CCTV does not make you a super recognizer. Because if you recognize your next door neighbor and they commit 20 crimes, well, you've got 20 suspect hits according to the sort of Met records. 
So, so what we found was that there was, there was less than 20 who we would now define as super recognizers. And in fact, some work full time as super recognizers within the Met later. Um, but some of the others who had made lots of identifications were just sort of average ability. So that's where the sort of the link with the research that had been done in Harvard and our research sort of suggested, ah, maybe other police forces, maybe other security organizations could possibly use super recognizers in the same way. But the main thing that really sort of showed this was that we did these empirical tests on them, found, you know, about, I say it was about 20 who, who would have meet super recognizer um, category today, um, the London riots happened in 2011, four months after we tested them. And there was, it was mayhem, basically. And effectively, the Metropolitan Police wanted to identify 5,000 suspects who had been rioting. And as you can imagine, most of them are wearing masks or balaclavas and scarves and disguising themselves. And um, But the 20 super recognizers identified 600 of these rioters. Um, nearly all of the other identifications that were made were sort of one-offs by a, a police officer going, oh, I arrested that guy last year. And therefore, you know, you could see there was a match. And in the end, they identified about 4,000 um, rioters from CCTV. But, but as I said, the super recognizers made the vast majority. So for, for the Metropolitan Police, they realized they had an asset they never understood before. Struck by how much you talk about the application of super recognizers to law enforcement, um, I assumed that you had started studying the field first and then found this application for it. But it sounds like it's been intertwined from the very beginning. Yeah. So, well, my, my PhD was on the way that CCTV images should be used for identification uh, purposes by law enforcement. So there was a sort of a match. Uh, and in fact, my the, the, the take home story from my PhD, which I now realize is wrong, was that it, reliability of identification from most CCTV images is, is very poor. And that's because we were looking at average performances of people trying to decide whether two unfamiliar faces, let's say you've got one CCTV image, you've got a mugshot image next to it, is that one and the same person? And we found that, you know, most people make lots of errors. We hadn't really looked at the individual differences in the types of errors that people made. So, so I look in hindsight at my research then and realize the overall conclusions were quite poor. I was actually more worried about miscarriages of justice that perhaps people would believe that it was more like, you know, that because you've got CCTV, you, you sort of solve the problem of eyewitnesses' memory not being very reliable. Um, and actually, so, so when I first sort of started working with the Metropolitan Police, I was actually quite dubious about the likelihood of us, um, you know, these, these officers who are making lots of identifications had a better ability than the rest of us. Um, and I thought it was probably down to motivation that perhaps they just came across more um, suspects than everybody else, the type of suspect who might get caught on camera more often, and maybe they just spent more of their time looking at images. So my thoughts were, can we motivate all the 30,000 police officers in London to make lots to look at this website more often because it might produce better results? In the end, that's probably true. But actually, there's a limit. How much time do you want every officer to spend looking at hundreds of images? It's going to take a lot of time when actually it might be quicker to get those images to the people who are most likely to recognize them. So it's, it's the super recognizers. Yeah, it's interesting that you also started off looking at uh, the algorithmic methods uh, that are being used. I, I do expect to find someone who's an expert in that field at some point to bring on this podcast. I think that'd be interesting. Um, to my knowledge, that kind of recognition is based on uh, things like the dimensions and the ratios of distances between your eyes and your nose and key points on your face. Um, but those are also static. I find 
with face blind people, uh, if we work hard enough, we can sometimes capture a face in an image in a 2d flat image. But then if we were to look at that same person in 3d in real life with movement, there's no chance of that helping in recognition. Um, and when I look at the algorithms, I wonder if there's a fatal flaw with them now that they are so static and so limited on what they're actually looking for, where the human brain is a kind of advanced uh, supercomputer that can look at far more characteristics and variables. I, I was thinking about a friend of mine who um, raises uh, dogs to help search for cadavers. And uh, one thing that they've recently started doing is training those dogs to identify people with coronavirus uh, based on smell. Right. And and you see dogs walking around airports and they have, um, you know, the dogs that are sniffing for bomb materials. Right. It's far more uh, effective than uh, any kind of electronic sniffer that we've yet developed. Um, and do you and do you think that there's such an edge with humans being the wetware doing this, that it's going to it's way better than what's available technologically today? And the technology is likely not to surpass so it's a very interesting question. In fact, some of the research we do is looking at that question at the moment, actually. I think I'll go back to the London riots, actually. Um, so super recognizers identified one image, the best face recognition system. Sorry, super recognizers identified 600. The best face recognition system in the world at the time identified one rioter out of 5,000, because of course it was at night and they were disguised and things like this. Um, and actually a super recognizer had already identified that person. So, so we've come a long way since and the algorithms have got better and there are obvious moral and ethical issues to do with their placement. Uh, and, and I'm as dubious as the next person about how they should best be used. Um, and, and however, the, the, the most recent research that sort of compared super recognizer and algorithm performance with still images, I should say, found that they worked at the accuracy rates were almost identical. Um, and what they did find, which is quite interesting, is if you combined the decision making and the confidence of humans in decisions with the algorithm sort of this is a percentage match, you know, I think the algorithm might say, oh, this is potentially 96% of a match. But if you combine humans and algorithms, you've got higher rates of accuracy. So for me, regardless of these sort of moral questions, whoever's going to make the final decision in a legal context will always be a human being if there's going to be an arrest or, or something like that. So, so I, I believe super recognizers should be running these algorithms. On that same research, the super recognizers and algorithms vastly outperformed controls, who we presume are just average ability members of the public. So yes, your question is quite relevant at the moment, um, algorithms might be better in certain circumstances, but they are not very good with poor quality images. And what you're, you, you sort of said was, well, humans can extract movement, humans can extract gait and other things from human, when making human identity judgments that perhaps an algorithm can't do. So at the moment, in, in less than perfect conditions, most humans will still beat algorithms. If you turn it on its head and you decide, actually, there is a moral reason to have algorithms on the streets. Perhaps, you know, you, you know you're the police and you know there is a terrorist coming into your town to plant a bomb and you, you want to catch them. So you're going to put every possible resource known to law enforcement there to try and stop them. And you, But you've got one person you're looking for, and perhaps they just do disguise themselves sometimes. So you've got perhaps a range of appearances that you want to get. Um, so the advantage of an algorithm is it can work for 24 hours a day, 365 days of a year. A human being cannot watch a screen and their attention be, you know, perfectly captured by that screen. So it's actually humans and algorithms working together. And I think the big problem about some of the 
failures of algorithms that have been in the media, it's because the human perhaps didn't let down the algorithm. The algorithm just says, hey, there's a bit of a match between these two images. It could be the same person. And then it's the human being next makes a decision. If they then go, ah, oh, computer must be right, we'll arrest that guy, um, that is a miscarriage of justice potential. So that, for me, is the problem. And so some of the research we're doing now is looking at how can we reduce the sort of cognitive biases that an algorithm might have, have over human decision-making. And, um, yeah, we've, it's, it's sort of not published yet. We've done a series of about 12 experiments for three different articles to, to look at this sort of effect. Um, because I do think there is, a, there is a potential need for them in certain circumstances, where those circumstances are is a political decision, and that has to be guided by the voters. If you don't like, you don't like them in, in, you know, your airport. Well, that's you don't vote for the people who do want to put them in place. I think that's the the issue. So I want to sidestep the ethical issue, which is really probably the most important issue to start with. Uh, but I'll, I'll slide into my comfort zone of technology for a moment. Uh, what you just described immediately reminded me of this story that's happening with um, automated uh, automated driving uh -huh. and uh, truck trucks that can self-pilot, especially trucks. Uh, so there's this idea that um, they're already testing, you know, self-driving uh, long-haul trucks in the U.S. And and that's a massive um, number. That's a massive amount of our population has that job, actually. And if you completely automate that away, a lot of those jobs go away. But the idea would be you have a you have a fleet of trucks now, and they're they're running along. But you don't want to just trust the algorithm. And so they will have. Um, a few really skilled drivers, you know, each driver is sitting there taking their shift and they may be responsible for, let's say, a, you know, five, six, maybe a dozen trucks that are under them. And whenever the algorithm uh, says, Ooh, there's something here I don't quite recognize, you know, like uh, a washing machine in the middle of the road, <laughs> you know, something it didn't plan for. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it flashes that unknown to a human who then, takes control remotely of the truck to deal with the situation. This is very similar to what you're describing. And also the other question that I see it, you know, Silicon Valley talking about is if we then have an AI and, you know, big data machine watching those edge cases, then we can, uh, you know, eventually train out the need for the human in, in, in the meantime. I mean, I mean that, is entirely possible. I, I think you are you are moving outside my expertise comfort zone on that. But but I do agree. Perhaps AI can do that. But um, I think I think the problem, the washing machine problem, is a perfect example of an anomaly. It's something that's not expected, and there will always be things that haven't been trained into AI that are not expected. And who knows how much better these systems will become one day. Uh, um, I, I, and I, I still think that in a human world, there is not going to be an acceptance of total uh, control by machines to some extent in the way that we, we could be going. There's always got to be a a, a human operator, the most trained, the most skilled, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's why we still send people into space when quite often we don't really need them there for some of those missions. It's, uh, you know, robots could be doing them now, but it is that we want to see humans doing it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I want to circle back in a moment to the commercial side of your endeavor. I find that very intriguing. We've talked about it a little bit here today. But before that, everyone can go to your website, superrecognizers.com. And uh, I think there might be a dash in there. We'll correct it at the end. Um, but uh, they could, there's not. Okay. They can go there and they can start taking tests just like the prosopagnosia tests, right? But 
the goal of these tests is to identify if you, you know, if you're a super recognizer or not. And if you do well enough on that test, I sort of gathered there's a, hey, contact us if you want to find a job um, element to it. Yeah, there is. I, I must admit the job, the jobs are so few and far between. Uh, it really is for those people who are, who, who do score astonishingly well. So, um, yes, by all means, if any of your listeners, viewers want to um, have a go at, at our super recognition tests, there some of them are the same that are used to diagnose prosopagnosia. Only they, they're, they've got extended sections to them to try and eke out the people who are very good and the people who are exceptionally good. So, so um, I must admit, I do. We do get emails from prosopagnosics who have taken them, uh, and they sort of said, "Well, it just confirms what I already knew about my my ability. I didn't do very well." Um, and they sometimes sign up to do further research with us as well. Although I've never really put any focus into into that end of the ability scale at all. I think there's still so much we need to know about the the top end, for, and there are plenty of people researching prosopagnosia, but. I mean, if you do click on the website, there is a an easy sort of 14 trial test. When I say easy, it starts very, very easy and it gets rapidly, very quickly difficult. Um, and even super recognizers generally find the last couple of trials quite hard. So um, and it but it's millions of people have taken it. I think we're up to about seven million from around the world so far. Uh, yeah, I always look forward to more people having a go. Um, and so, and as for jobs, I mean, I don't really have a commercial side to it. I'm a university uh, professor and I do research. But as part of that, I do research for, say, police forces uh, and other organizations trying to find super recognizers within those organizations or um, so that they can recruit super recognizers if, if they've got a need for them. So, I mean, I can give you an example. Um, with, with Munich police in Germany who are quite keen on advertising what they did at a big press conference at the end. But every single police officer in Munich was invited to take uh, our test. There's actually a series of 12 of them measuring different aspects of face recognition. And so there were, I think there were about 8,000 officers in Munich and over 5,000 in their own time, voluntarily decided to do start these tests. We always get a big dropout because people realise, actually, I'm definitely not a super recogniser. I'm not going to waste my time carrying on to the end. Um, but we found sort of slightly over 30 super recognisers who, who met our who, that met criteria and on our particular four categories that we have. So that's the sort of thing we do. Yeah, the money that I get, from those goes to the university actually and it pays for my research assistance so i can do more research i so as far as commercializing it i've never had any money for any of this and sometimes i've managed to as, as they call it in the uk buy out some of my teaching time so other people can do back some of my marking and <laughs> things like that because uh, actually i enjoy giving lectures so i don't tend to like to buy out that, that time and that's what most people in my situation would do so so yeah commercialization is is, is probably not quite the right word but um, we do work with a couple of organizations who do specifically recruit super recognizers and they use our tests they more or less the same ones as for the police or sometimes they have specific aims that's different for for what policing does as a as an identity verification company in India we work with, for instance, and they, um, they they need to verify that people applying for their sort of national identity card are who they say they are. So you've got a billion people plus in India, and they're all the super recognizers that we have recruited are, are part of that process. That makes sense. Yeah. And there are um, police forces then... Is there a position in, let's say, a really modern progressive police force that someone can can be convinced of to create that is specifically like Bill Smith? He's our SR. Yeah. <laughs> I so I, I genuinely think that most police forces sort of know 
the people within them who are good at face recognition anyway. Because you imagine old-fashioned policing. You see it on cop shows from the past where, you know, they'd walk through the streets and they'd know all the... They'd wave at the dodgy characters who lived there. So those people would know... They'd probably be... They'd probably be super recognizers or certainly better than average at face recognition. Um, so, I mean, in Europe, certainly, we're doing a lot of work with different countries. Some of them I'm not allowed to say, but Germany in particular, we are, who are setting up dedicated super recognizer units who effectively work full time, um, dealing with all the CCTV image that comes in from their city. And they'll go, ah, oh, I've seen that guy before in other CCTV image, you know, from a month or two ago, and then matching crimes together and realizing that the same perpetrator committed both crimes. Nobody would have been able to do that in the past. Um, you know, and so in America, they're far more resistant to it. I have spoken to some very senior officers in some very large city um, police forces in your country. And all of them are, oh, no, the technology is going to solve this problem for us. We're coming back to the technology. But technology only works when it's loaded correctly and the human element is done right. My argument is that you need the super recognizers to work with the technology because you get the best results there. So um, so I do see, do see a use for police forces, as I said, in Europe uh, and in Australia. We've, we've done this and in um, Asia at least one Asian country as well. In uh, the US and probably other places in the world, but I definitely have read an article about this. Um, the technology, out, the algorithms may be, they may have some implicit race bias. And do you think that the human super recognizers also have that same kind of bias? Is there a potential for that? Well, yeah. Well, funny enough, we just published a paper with two American authors, one from California, one from the University of Colorado, just looking at this particular aspect. Yes, we are all better at recognizing faces of our own ethnicity than we are recognizing faces of other ethnicities. Um, it's called the cross-race effect. It's, it's not actually necessarily about your own ethnicity. It's about the ethnicity that you have most contact with and grow up with. So you could imagine that me as a white person, if I'd lived in China, grown up in China, I'd probably be really good at recognizing Chinese faces, not so good at white. Algorithms are a bit the same, really. Um, one of the problems is that uh, th there are far fewer black images available for, or at least the algorithm developers basically loaded them up with white faces. Um, when they first developed these algorithms, it, oh, it all looks really well with all these white faces or whatever. And then they tried to try policing use them and where the majority of the people or a proportion of the people you're interested in might be black. And of course, they don't work. And they also don't work with children's faces, because if you load them up with adult faces and then you want to do some sort of missing child alert using these um these algorithms, well, they can't differentiate very well between children because you haven't loaded them up. So it's very similar in a way to humans because people are better at recognizing people of their own age um, and people are better at recognizing people of their own ethnicity. Unless, of course, as I said, the contact is different. So I'll give you an example with a super recognizer. We had one coincidentally come to take part in a research project where we were doing brain scanning studies and we were showing them baby faces to recognize we just thought well let's try that's going to be really hard they are yeah really difficult babies do look alike as people say and um this super recognizer coincidentally worked as a pediatric nurse with babies and her her score we had a, a, a baby test we had an adult test. Her scores on the baby test were actually slightly higher than her scores on the adult face test. Uh, everybody else showed the opposite pattern. Um, so, again, so, so for sort of policing um, and certainly for the identification of child victims of 
and, and, and you know, missing children and, and um, that sort of thing. It would be a super recognizer who also has great a deal of experience of, of, of working with children would be the most appropriate for that type of role. And in fact, we have I have done testing of our, our sort of national uh, child protection unit in the UK as well. And we did find one super recogniser. Yeah, what what percentage of the population do you think uh, classifies as a super recogniser? Okay, so let's, this is a contentious issue because it's it's always an arbitrary line. It's like somebody who gets 90% in an exam and that's your pass grade. Somebody gets 89, that's a fail. Um, so it it's much harder to do that. But, but generally, people have used the sort of statistical definition that we use for outliers in research. And the same as prosopagnosia, people have sort of suggested that it's about 2% of the population because that of, of prosopagnosics and 2% are... Um, are super recognizers. However, I have to say for our policing and our jobs, the people who would be eligible are a far smaller proportion of the population because they have to do well on lots of tests, not just one. Um, so, so, yeah, most of the people who would be classified as super recognizers in my research would not be good enough for a job. That's the... That's the problem, really. Um, so you are sort of about this before. It, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an arbitrary line. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting. We're looking at a bell curve, essentially. Yeah. You know, usually um, I talk about face blindness. I, I hate saying prosopagnosia. It's, so, uh, it's such a long word. But <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretentious to me. But anyway, um, so... Usually I'm talking to people about that and we always make the point that it is on a spectrum. So I'm actually quite mild. I can eventually recognize people. I, I definitely recognize my wife and my kids, for example. I don't know if I actually recognize their faces or if I've built up enough of uh, a, a profile of them based on everything but the face. Um, but I will recognize them nonetheless. I will never mistake them, right? Others uh, who are very severe can't even recognize themselves in the mirror or in, in pictures. Um, but I would, I, I guess we have to really expand this uh, spectrum to be from super recognizer to face blind. And so you could be anywhere along that spectrum. I imagine it's a normal distribution. Um, we think so. Yeah, we we have no well, we there's no evidence to suggest it's not a normal distribution. Uh, you know, it could be that it's skewed one way or the other, but we have nothing to compare it with. Yes, computers, sort of, but they're not really a proper comparison. We and you know we can't get, and our sort of primary apes might be the closest thing that we could compare with. So so we I don't think we'll ever know whether it's normal distribution at all. All we can say is, well, scores on a particular test are normally distributed, suggesting that. But actually, the tests themselves may be biased in some way that we'll never actually know um, in real life. So, yeah, but I, I do agree with you. You mentioned a moment ago uh, doing some brain scans during your research and um I still haven't had um, a prosopagnosic uh, researcher on. Um, I, I wonder if I'll, I'll cause angst in the community that I went to you first. <laughs> um, uh, but um, my understanding is that for the most severest of cases of face blindness, there is a particular area of the brain which on brain scans shows low activity compared to normal. Um, is that also true for super recognizers that you see a massive amount of activity there? Okay, yes. So the area in the brain that you're talking about is called the fusiform gyrus. Uh, and certainly when people have brain damage uh, and that area is, is particularly damaged, that is where they may, may develop acquired prosopagnosia. And also um, when you show prosopagnosics versus controls, um, you know, faces, it sort of like lights up, which to use an analogy more in controls than it does in prosopagnosis. 
So I have seen only one research project that's actually looked at that, uh, comparing super recognizers with controls, uh, and they they found no effects whatsoever when it came to the fusiform gyrus. So we used EEG in our research, which rather than sort of looking at activity in sort of geographical locations, it measures the activity as a time uh, over time. And, and most people, when they see a face, um, sort of sh show a reaction at about 170 milliseconds after that um, face has been shown. So you see a little spike on the screen. It's a series of spikes going across the scene. And, and people who are, fam when you see a familiar face, you see a second spike at about 250 milliseconds, so about a quarter of a second. So you sort of assume that's got to be something to do with actually recognizing that face as being someone you know. So we thought, well, let's compare super recognizers and controls and see if we get any differences in, in activity levels. We found absolutely no differences at those two main parts of where you think you might find um, differences. What we did find was there were some other parts of the activity process. One was at 100 milliseconds, where super recognizers showed a much sharper spike than controls. And the other one was at 600 milliseconds. And we need people to replicate that, really, because it was only a very small sample. And, you know, you can always have noise in any type of research so we'd like people to do that again but the, the very early spike is sort of something to do with the integration of features we do know this and it may be perhaps super recognizers are better at integrating facial features together which may drive their event ability and then at 600 milliseconds it's something to do with um, the sort of semantic knowledge that you know you recognize something not necessarily faces, but anything. Um, and, and we wonder whether, therefore, that rather it may be different pathways between information in the brain might be more effective in super recognizers than controls, rather than necessarily a spot in the brain, the fusiform gyrus. Um, but that's very, very, very um, tentative. I'm not going to say that's true. I just get, it's going to say is I'd like to see other researchers do more research into this it's quite hard because they're so rare um, and EEG is such a messy as is any brain scanning actually it's very a messy sort of process that you get lots of errors any slight movement causes errors in the in the signal uh, and it, it takes a lot of time and effort to do a proper study so hopefully someone will <laughs> well in in the meantime then uh you have to rely on the tests. I'd like to wrap up with a, a little discussion of testing because um, I, I find this to be a little controversial even in the face blind community, right? So you have someone like me who is, you know, on, on the milder end of the spectrum. Um, I'm able to do pretty well on the face blind test that you referenced earlier, right? So uh, you know, the FaceBlind website will have tests that you could take some of the same images that you'd find in uh, the super recognizer test. And, you know, I, I'm able to do reasonably well on that. Um, however, there's a misconception that I think a lot of people have when they hear about face blindness. They think that as we're walking around in the world, we see a face walking towards us that has no features on it. That's just fu a fuzzed out flap of nondescript skin. <laughs> and that is not at all what we see. It's that we really can't visualize that face after, you know, so I can see beauty. By the way, I may have a shot of recognizing you. Thank you for being bald. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're saying. Well, well, yeah. So when I look at, so when, when I take those tests, I can do quite well, but it's because of, and, and I did all right on the short test, the super recognizer short test. Um, I, I want to talk about my process of going through that test because there were some humorous uh, points in it. Um, but if I am at a heightened state of alertness for recognizing, 
which you are when you <laughs> sit down to take one of these tests, right? Um, you know, then my brain goes into more like, uh, okay, I'm spotting the differences mode. And so, you know, in both sets of tests, and I'll talk about yours now, I took the short test. There's a much longer one, which I haven't taken yet, but the first one is only about 15, 20 minutes, I think. Um, and so I would be presented with a face. I would look for something as quickly as I could that stands out to me, usually something not facially related necessarily. Like I'm looking for moles, yeah. especially constellations of moles, right? I'm looking for how pointy an ear is. I'm looking for a wisp of hair, but then thinking, hey, he's probably going to try to trick me and the next picture is not going to have that wisp of hair. And I found that, I think, to be true. Um, but again, I did fairly well. Also, I think on that test because of the, t the lack of time lag. So, you know, I'm presented with a face, I lock it into whatever kind of short term memory that I have available to me. I sense, however, a real test or a better test, let's say, just speaking of pretentious, I'm talking to a doctor in this and saying, <laughs> here's how you have a better test. But I think that that idea of time my guess is that super recognizers don't have the drop off that I would. Now, if you showed me those faces tomorrow, I'm not going to remember that I've even seen those faces. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, I think, yeah, I, I'll describe the test. So actually that particular test, there are faces with moles on, uh, as you probably remember. And I do think, I, I do wonder whether you're what, what I would call using a sort of pattern recognition strategy you know that you're going you're, you see a, an initial face for a few seconds you've got to try and learn that face so you're trying to learn some patterns on that face even if you're not extracting the sort of identity information that uh, uh, other people would would do and then you see a oh, carry on i want you to continue but uh yeah absolutely that's what i was doing and and the problem was after the first few tests you know, you let me get away with that. And then suddenly you showed me instead of a profile, a head on and I'm, I'm lost. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's what it was supposed to do. Really. It teases participants in nearly everybody gets the first few trials. Correct. And then suddenly it, the, the accuracy rates start to plummet. And by the time you get to the last one, very few people get it right. It's slightly above chance levels, but, but, so it means that people can get it right. It's not impossible. Um, yeah, and, and really, that was trying to devise a test. for. It was for a TV show, actually. So, so they wanted something that was five minutes long that everybody could have a go at. And you are right about it. I think you, you're using what I would call a pattern recognition strategy. You're, you're looking at specific features. Some of them have quite distinctive eyebrows. Some have, as I said, a mole things like this, but of course, as soon as you turn the face so that those things are no longer available to view, if you're using that type of pattern strategy, which I suspect prosopagnosics may do more effectively than people who are not, because that's the way you have to try to identify someone. You mentioned you recognized your, you know, your wife and your family and people like that. And I wonder whether that's how you recognize them. I, it's, I don't know how you quite measure that, um, but you've got so used to those patterns that it, 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 they, you just know who they are instantly. Um, so with super recognition, of course, some of the tests we use, there are delays of a, a week between watching videos of people, actually. Okay. And then a week later, looking at like police-type lineups where you see people in an array, photographs in an array. So that's doubly hard because, of course, you've got moving images where you're learn learning the faces, and then you've got still images uh, that were taken at different times to the moving images. And these are people who are designed to look quite similar to one another. So, yeah, that first test you take, as I said, is a bit of a teaser to get everybody interested so that they'll then contribute to our research with, with later tests. And in fact, the second one in the series is called the Cambridge Face Memory Test. And that, as I said, is used. We've got an extended version of it, but the shorter version of it, which is the first trials, is actually quite commonly used, probably the most commonly used test for prosopagnosia nowadays. But even then, 
some prosopagnosic people score quite well on it. And we think it's because they are using this pattern strategy that they found effective. But that's not all people with face blindness, as you like to call it, um, perhaps aren't as good at using that strategy. And maybe that's the reason that some people have you know, have worse face blindness than, than others. I say, I'm moving out of my comfort zone in my research area there. But from sort of my reading and understanding of it, that sort of makes sense. So, yeah, the more the tests go on, I mean, we have a test where um, you have to learn faces in advance and then you have a huge crowds trying to spot them. It's called spotting a face in a crowd test. Uh, we took them at Waterloo Station in London, which is the biggest station, most crowded station in, in Europe at rush hour. <laughs> That's a hard test. But the best supervisors score really well on it. It's as though they can scan the crowds and, it, you know, and suddenly go, oh, there they are, look. Uh, and that's what we find in policing as well, that, you know, they, they'll be off. I've heard of anecdotal cases where super recognizers have been off duty and they're sort of going on the train home and sitting opposite them is someone that they saw on a wanted list some time ago. And it's like, back to work then. Sorry, sir, are you? Because uh, I think you're wanted, aren't you? Sorry, you're under arrest. <laughs> Which is a... Special skill. Uh, there was one of the people we identified from Stuttgart police recently. That happened to them. Stuttgart had some riots over COVID, uh, people not wanting to sort of socially distance and wear masks and things like this. So they had some quite serious riots where property was damaged and things. And, and this super recognizer just happened to catch a train. Well, there's a one of the rioters is sitting opposite him. So I think that was a, probably a surprise for that suspect. Wow. Josh, I really want to thank you for joining today. This was fascinating. Um, I gave the uh, website earlier. I, I think I might have uh, mispronounced or misspelled that. Uh, also, there's a Z or an S at the end. So please uh, give out and I'll put it in the show notes as well, but please share it, you know, here for the folks listening. Brilliant. Yeah. It's www.superrecognizers.com. There's no dash between okay. super and recognizers. Thank you. And people, and, and I would recommend that uh, everyone go take the test, take the, the short test. And how long does it take to do the longer test that you're invited to? Uh, about half an hour. So the short test is five minutes. Uh, it's timed, so it's pretty quick. The, the, the next ones are about half an hour or so. Thank you so much for joining today, and I look forward to seeing more of your research. Lovely. Thank you very much, then. Bye-bye. For more info on this episode or prosopagnosia in general, visit faceblindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.